For you members, you know I really don't switch things up. Uh, Christmas time, we kind of just, maybe we'll sing a few Christmas carols. We'll sing one today. But typically, we just kind of keep on plodding along wherever we were before. Um, and definitely today, that is the case. We are smack dab in the Leviticus, and it is a very Leviticus-y kind of passage, right? Uncleanness after childbirth. And yet, I can truly say to you that this passage, in more ways than one, is truly related to the birth of our Savior. And so, truly is a Christmas message, okay? It's as good as you're going to get from me. Sorry. In fact, our passage is quoted in Luke's account of the birth and first beginnings of the life of Christ. In fact, turn with me there real quick to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Luke 2, 21 through 24. Right after the birth of Christ, it says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name, the name given uh, by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, when it speaks there of the purification according to the law of Moses, it's referring to Leviticus chapter 12. And in fact, it quotes from verse 8 of chapter 12. It speaks about two turtle doves or two pigeons. So very much this is a Christmas message. In all seriousness, though, I, I hadn't planned this, but we will consider many ways in which this passage, uh, you might think birth after uncleanness, yes, even this passage is related to the birth of our Lord and what it teaches, about, uh, what it teaches us about why he was born. With that being said, we are today in chapter 12 of Leviticus. As I said last week, chapters 11 through 16 are the third major division of the book, and they deal largely, pretty much exclusively, with uncleanness and its cleansing. We saw last week in chapter 11 the various kinds of foods that were unclean to eat, or animals which, if they died, would make you unclean if you touched them. Overall, we saw that the point of all those, far from being overly mysterious and, and arcane laws, um, really the point of the food laws is that they are just one more expression of the basic principle and lesson of the book of Leviticus, namely the absolute necessity for moral cleanness and purity in order to dwell with God. In fact, if I were to ask you, what is, what is a verse that tells us that exhorts God's people to holiness you would probably actually quote from Leviticus chapter 11. God summarizes the purpose of all the food laws there in verse 45. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. For all the mystery and kinds of rabbit trails we could go down of the food laws, at the end of the day, that's what they teach us. Well, beginning in chapter 12 and going through chapter 15, we're still dealing with different kinds of uncleanness However, unlike chapter 11, where it's something external to you, it's a food you ingest or maybe an animal carcass that you might touch, in chapters 12 through 15, 
what makes you unclean is not something external to yourself. It's not something outside of you. Rather, it's something internal. It's something that comes from you, from your own body. You are what's unclean, according to chapters 12 through 15. Ultimately, this is meant to teach Israel and us that our spiritual uncleanness at the end of the day is not something merely external to us. It's not merely acts we commit, but more fundamentally than that, it's who and what we are. It's ingrained into our fallen nature. One commentator says, insofar as man can pollute himself through his own bodily functions, as well as through contact with animals, these uncleanness laws reflect the fact that Israel's status as a holy nation brings challenges inside and out. Sin is not merely a matter of environment, but of individual failure. And I would add, not only individual failure in terms of acts that we commit, but more fundamentally than that, in terms of who and what we are. It's in our DNA, so to speak. Well, the first of these kind of internal or inherent uncleannesses, as we might call them, is the uncleanness that comes upon a woman for giving birth. Now, perhaps right away, as soon as you hear that, you're Your head is spinning with all kinds of questions, and there's all kinds of even emotions and thoughts that you're having when you hear that. On the one hand, this chapter raises just very basic practical questions and difficulties of why. What is the rationale behind why a woman is unclean after childbirth? On the other level, there's kind of an added emotional element to the questions raised in this chapter. Why is a woman unclean after giving birth to a cute little baby? She had to carry the thing for nine months. She was crying out in agony. And all at the end, you get to the end, and you're like, well, you're unclean for 40 days. Okay, have fun with that. Uncleanness is associated with sin. She has to give a sin offering for giving birth to a child. Why does she need a sin offering for something that is not inherently sinful? Giving birth to a child is a good thing. In fact, it's a commandment from God in many ways. When you read commentators, you can kind of see that they feel the sort of pressure. They kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room, so to speak. John Gill says, But why a sin offering from childbearing? Is it sinful to bear and bring forth children in lawful marriage where the bed is undefiled? Those are all legitimate questions and kind of thoughts and feelings that are raised in this chapter. And in many ways, we raise those questions not because we don't have a high regard for God's Word, but rather because everything everything else we see in God's Word points us to the goodness of the marriage bed, the goodness of giving birth to children, the goodness of new life, all those things. And then you have this passage that seems in some sense to be contrary to that. Well, it's those kinds of questions that we want to address and wrestle through today. And Lord willing, as we did last week, we will uh, not only be able to see answers to those questions, but I believe also some some very encouraging gospel application for our souls, um, which does, in fact, relate to the birth of Christ. So this really, I mean, it's about birth, right? So we're going to get there. That being said, let's first go ahead and walk through the passage 
And first, simply just try to understand the rationale behind some of these laws, what they were meant to teach Israel and us. And then secondly, we will consider some application. Okay? Turn with me and look again, beginning in verse number one. Take a drink. Verse number one. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Now, what we'll see in this chapter, in this whole purification process, is that there are kind of two levels of uncleanness, two degrees of uncleanness that a woman experiences in the whole process of purification. In fact, one commentator speaks of a time of greater uncleanness and then lesser uncleanness. The greater uncleanness has greater restrictions upon it. The lesser restrictions doesn't have as many, but it still has restrictions that are normal for uncleanness. Well, these first seven days after the birth of a baby boy are that time of greater uncleanness with more restrictions. In fact, we see this really at the end of verse 2 in which it says, as at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Leviticus 15 tells us all of the restrictions which that entailed, and it was quite restrictive. In fact, turn with me real quick to Leviticus 15, verses 19 through 23. Leviticus 15, 19 through 23. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. So that is basically the same kind of restrictions that a woman would experience the first week after giving birth to a boy. Now, this didn't mean that uh, that she couldn't be touched. It didn't mean that people would not attend to her. Um, surely there would be midwives. She had just given birth in a time when there's no real anesthetics. She would probably be exhausted. Um, in some cases, perhaps even the husband would be attending to her. That was probably very much the case with Joseph and Mary. If you remember, there's no inn at the stable. He probably delivered her. He would be with her during that first period of time, Right? If you did contract uncleanness, you just had to bathe and wash your clothes and you were unclean until the evening. But that is the first week. And and it seems that the reason why it's a greater uncleanness is the uncleanness is almost more transmissible. It's almost more contagious in a certain sense. Anything the woman touches, you can get unclean by touching that. Whereas later on, that's not necessarily the case. Remember, Every Israelite would have been ceremonially unclean many, many times through their life. 
In one sense, you almost had to become unclean if you were just going to live a normal life carrying out God's commands. If you wanted to have a family member, or a family member, if you wanted to have a family, you would become unclean in several different kinds of ways. If you had to bury a family member, you would become unclean. It was just a part of life. You weren't to be casual about it. If you didn't take the proper steps to get clean, you'd be cut off from Israel. But nevertheless, uncleanness was just a normal part of life, perhaps like maybe even getting a cold or catching the flu today. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's in 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel, where David does not come into the presence of King Saul and Saul says, um, he must be unclean. It's like, he's, that's why he's not here today. It's kind of like how, well, where are they at? Oh, they're sick today. They couldn't come. It was just a normal part of life, and it was not inherently sinful to be ceremonially unclean, okay? Verse 3, speaking of the baby boy, says, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, growing up, I had always heard that the reason why the baby boy was not circumcised until the eighth day was because by the eighth day, the levels of vitamin K in his blood would be at such a level that his blood would coagulate very well and there would be no kind of excessive bleeding or harm to the baby. I've read quite a, a few other sources that seem to confirm that. I have no reason to reject that, that God in his infinite wisdom would do something like that. I do think, however, that is not the only reason or even the main reason why it's on the eighth day. Rather, it seems the eighth day is kind of just the common day for doing things after a week-long period of purification. For example, with the Nazarite, if he sins and has to go uh, through a week-long period of cleansing, it's on the eighth day that he offers his sacrifices. When a leper is cleansed, it's on the eighth day that he brings his sacrifices. And really, that makes sense of what we've seen elsewhere in Leviticus. Namely, that uncleanness and holiness are never to come in contact with one another. If you touch something or eat something that is holy while you are unclean, you are cut off from Israel. And so it makes sense that it would be on the eighth day that you would bring your sacrifices. Because before then, you could not come into the tabernacle. You would be unclean. Makes also sense that perhaps before the eighth day, the baby boy would have been unclean by virtue of being touched by his mother in a state of greater uncleanness. On the eighth day, though, that uncleanness is less transmissible, and so he could receive holy circumcision. The other reason why you waited until the eighth day is because if the child were a firstborn, it was on the eighth day that they were consecrated to the Lord. For example, Exodus 22 tells us, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. In fact, this is also mentioned in Luke chapter 2 after the birth of Jesus. Luke says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So for that reason also, it's not until the eighth day that the boy would be circumcised. Moving on in verse 4. <clears throat> 
It says, then she, the mother, shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Here we have the time of lesser uncleanness. Again, it's a lesser uncleanness because it's not as transmissible. She's now kind of, she's had a week to rest. It's very practical also in a certain sense. She's kind of being reintroduced to normal daily life. She can touch things and they don't become unclean. And yet it seems she still has some level of uncleanness to some extent. It says she cannot touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary. And those are kind of the most basic restrictions for anyone in a state of uncleanness. As far as the phrase, the blood of her purifying, I don't know that I have any tremendously brilliant insights to give to you. I don't think it means that the blood itself has a purifying effect, since later it will be the blood of the sacrifice that cleanses. Rather, I think it just refers to the bleeding that she experiences during that whole 33-day period. Verse 5 says, But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Now, as far as why the time is doubled, if it is a little girl who is born as opposed to a boy... There are all kinds of answers given to this historically, which range from wacky to more probable. The funniest one that I found um, is actually an answer that rabbis have said over the centuries, um, that the reason why the time is doubled for a girl is because when the woman is travailing in the pains of birth, she swears a wrath oath that she will never sleep with her husband again. If the child is a boy, she quickly rejoices because boys were particularly desired for children back then. And so in her joy, it only takes her a week to repent of her oath. If it's a girl, however, it takes her twice as long to get over her sorrow and to repent of her rash oath because it's not a boy, right? That's what some have said historically, all right? From a medical perspective... Some have argued that perhaps, perhaps the reason had to do with differences between giving birth to a boy versus giving birth to a girl. One Jewish doctor, in fact, in the 30s did a study and found that after women gave birth to a girl, there were higher levels of toxins in their blood for a longer period of time than it was with a boy. Similarly, I've heard of other studies saying that being pregnant with a girl is often harder on the body than being pregnant with a boy. And indeed, perhaps there is some truth to this in, in medicine that we see in the fact that this practice of different recovery times, depending on the gender of the child, was very commonly practiced by many ancient peoples throughout the ancient world. So much so that even John Gill says that maybe, quote, there is something in nature which requires a longer time for purifying after the one than after the other. I don't know. There, that there may be some truth to that. I think the answer lies more in terms of a theological or maybe social perspective. Some have suggested that perhaps with the boy, the time is less because the shedding of blood in circumcision atones in some sense for some of the mother's uncleanness, although I'm not particularly persuaded of that. 
Typically, it's the blood of sacrifices, not circumcision, which atones for sin. Personally, I think there are probably two main reasons. The first is that this fits a general pattern that we've already seen in the book of Leviticus, namely that socially speaking, men or or having boys was more desired in the ancient world. From a very practical perspective, a male child brought more to the table in the ancient world. They could work more. They were physically stronger. They would be better in defense if your enemies attacked you. They could carry on the family name. They would increase the size of the family, whereas a female child would be married off to another family. We see this also later on in the book of Leviticus when we see the value for different kinds of slaves. Female slaves are almost always valued at half the value of a male slave. Furthermore, we've even seen this in the animals for sacrifices. Sacrifices for greater sins had to be from a male animal. It was only a sin of a lesser degree that could be atoned for by a female goat or a female sheep. I would say that points to its lesser value in some sense. Secondly, I'd say, as I said with the animal sacrifices, I think the other reason why males have half the recovery time was perhaps to point to Christ, the Messiah, who was himself a male, perhaps to point to the fact that he was the ultimate seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3 that he would be the man, Christ Jesus. Other than that, I think we just kind of have to rest and maybe scratch our heads and pray for more wisdom later on. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Well, with these verses, we finally kind of get to answer and and look at uh, at least one of the rationales for why birth made a woman unclean. I think there's a second rationale that is more connected with other scriptures. One of them is directly in this passage, um, but I think there's two. Before we consider that, though, just as a side note, notice again at the very end in verse 8, again, we see a provision for a lesser sacrifice for a poorer Israelite woman, namely two turtle doves or two pigeons. As we've seen before, so here it says, if she cannot afford, meaning she's too poor to purchase a lamb. Well, if you noticed again in Luke, that's exactly what Mary offered after the birth of Isaac, which means that when the God of the universe took on flesh, he was born into the poorest kind of family, in Israel. If you ever struggle to make ends meet, if you ever feel like you're just kind of barely getting by, you save up but just finally some money to have it dashed and then something else breaks, 
be comforted by the fact that Jesus very much knew what that was life, what that was like. And in many ways, his whole life was like that from his birth to his death. I like what Charles Spurgeon has to say about poverty. He says, there is a poverty which the poets love. It dwells in a thatched cottage whose porch is overgrown with vines. Perhaps if the poets had rheumatism through the wind blowing through the decaying walls, they might not sing of it quite so sweetly. But in London, we have a poverty that has neither porch nor overgrown vines. Poverty has no cottage but a single room where scarcely the decencies of life can be preserved. Beloved, if you have to suffer from this gloom, remember that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. You can also say he had nowhere to properly be born, but was rather born in a stable. And when his poor mother came to offer sacrifices, she could only afford the cheapest kind. And Jesus knows very much what it's like to be poor. Be comforted from that. Back now, at last, to the rationale for why a woman is unclean after childbirth. As I said, I think there's two reasons, one directly in this passage and one connected with other scriptures. As for the direct reason, the passage seems to be very clear that the uncleanness is due to the blood of birth in the ensuing recovery period. This is seen in the fact that blood is mentioned many, many times in this chapter. In fact, verse 7 explicitly says, then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood, implying it was the blood that rendered her unclean. As we've seen all throughout Leviticus, blood is kind of a paradoxical thing. On the one hand, nothing cleanses and washes away sin like blood. It always has to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. On the other hand, if you encounter it in a way that is not for sacrifice, it can often render you defiled. It's kind of paradoxical in that sense. As far as, as how, what that teaches us here, I think that far from denigrating giving birth to children, this law is highlighting, again, the special purpose of blood. As Genesis says, that life is in the blood, which ultimately points to Christ and redemption in his blood. However, I think there is another reason why the woman is unclean after childbirth, and this is really getting to our application. I would say that elsewhere in the law, anything that has to do with the reproduction of life, whether the acts of it or the organs related to it, can very often render one unclean, even if blood is not involved. For example, we've already seen in Leviticus 15 how menstruation can make a woman unclean. But perhaps most surprisingly of all, we also read there that a man and wife were rendered unclean simply any time they came together sexually. Again, this makes us ask questions. Why? That is no sin. Um, you know, conceiving children, a man and a wife coming together, those are all good things from God. It is, it is only those who denigrate you know, flesh uh, or, or, or things like that who make those sins. Um, but uncleanness is a picture of sin. So why is it that anything related to the reproduction of life somehow makes you unclean? Well, Patrick Fairbairn 
following many other commentators, says in in his excellent book on Old Testament typology, he, he gives the following answer, and I think he's correct. He says, some impurities were all more or less directly connected with the production of life. And it may seem strange at first sight that production and birth, as well as disease and death, should be occasions of defilement in the law. It would not only be strange, but inexplicable, were it not for the doctrine of the fall and the inherent depravity of our nature growing out of it. By reason of this, the powers of human life are tainted with corruption and all that pertains to the production of life. In other words, everything related to the formation of a new life, from the act of conception to the giving of birth, renders one ceremonially unclean because after the, Paul, after the fall, the parents who came together to conceive the child were themselves infected with the contagion of sin. They brought forth a new life and they passed that contagion to that new life as innocent as it may seem. This is probably also why we see many times when biblical writers want to highlight the great sinfulness of mankind, when they want to highlight the fact that sin is ingrained into our DNA, they often talk about it as being part and parcel to conception, time in the womb, and even birth. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Or Psalm 51.5, which we sang earlier, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying there that his mother sinned in the act of conception, but that she herself was infected with sin and passed it on to him, and that he has never existed a moment apart from sin. Whereas Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, we were by nature children of wrath. So much so are we corrupted by sin. It's part of our nature. We never exist apart from it. You have no idea what Adam experienced in his sinless state in the garden. You can't comprehend that because you've never experienced it before. You can't even imagine what that's like to have no temptations coming out of your heart. It's part of our DNA. And so in this sense, when little Israelite boys and girls were born in blood and uncleanness. It was a fitting picture of their spiritual uncleanness from their first moments, which was passed down to them by their parents, which was passed down to them by theirs, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Benjamin Keach says, The Spirit of God doth, as it were, set out the ugliness of sin by comparing it to the blood and pollution of a wretched newborn infant. Let us learn from this to be fully sensible of our birth pollution, by which I mean original sin, which we brought into the world with us. All that are born by natural generation are spiritually unclean. Adam's breach of the law of God was ours, we being in him. He stood as the common root of all his posterity, His sin by God is counted to us, and the natural corruption which follows from it passeth from generation to generation to generation. 
This is the state of all mankind when they are first born after the fall. It's the state of all those who are still united to the first Adam, brothers and sisters. They are born physically alive, but spiritually dead in rebellion against God. You children here, you children here who do not yet know God, this is your state now. You are still united to Adam, and his guilt and his corruption has been passed to you. God sees you and accounts Adam's sin to you as you sit here today, and therefore his guilt and corruption was passed on to you through their parents who received it from their parents, who received it from their parents, all the way back as all humanity received it from Adam and Eve. Your sin problem is not that you simply do bad things from time to time. Your sin problem is that you are bad by nature. Perhaps sometimes you might hear your parents speak of so-and-so, oh, they're a good, no, he's a good kid. Or perhaps even they say to you, come here, you're a good kid, you're a good kid. Or maybe they speak of other kids, don't hang out with them, they are bad kids. He is a bad boy, he's a bad girl, do not hang out with them. You may be outwardly good and obedient, but at the end of the day, you are a bad kid. You're not a good kid. Maybe in some ways you haven't done some of the acts of those other kids, but in your heart, you have the same sin. You're not a good kid. You're bad. You're a sinner. If nothing changes with you, you shall remain in this state forever, in a state of permanent death, yet always alive in the torments of hell. It will indeed be the sad fate of anyone, man, woman, boy, or girl, who does not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. They will experience a double death, physical death and eternal death in hell. Born once, they will die twice. And yet, children, this very day, this very afternoon, this very minute, there is hope for you. The good news of the gospel is not that good kids go to heaven, but that God saves bad kids, very bad kids, and brings them to heaven. It has to do in so many ways with the birth of Christ. The song that we will sing today is a Christmas carol. I told you it's a Christmas sermon. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But we sang it last Wednesday night at prayer meeting, and I was struck by one line in the song, and it so fitly expresses how Christ's birth is the hope of sinners. It says that Christ was born, quote, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give the second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. That's the gospel. Christ was born that man no more may die. To undo the curse, the death of the fall. In fact, in many ways, that was the first gospel promise ever given right after the fall. God says, in fact, to Satan in Genesis 3, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, a Savior is promised who would be born of a woman who shall crush the head of the serpent and undo the effects of fall and death. Christ does this in two ways. First and foremost, by taking away our sin and guilt on the cross. And not only taking away our sin and guilt, but the guilt of Adam. You realize, boys and girls, your guilt is not just for your own sins, but of the sins of Adam. And if God is ever going to undo the fall and give you life, he must first take away your sins. Because the death that follows from it is the punishment from the guilt of your sin. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's guilt is the guilt which brings the punishment of death. And if Christ is to save you from death, he first has to remove guilt which he did on the cross. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ bore the sin and guilt of sinners on the cross and gives us eternal life. Secondly, Christ undoes the fall by giving us the second birth of new life. Again, as the Christmas carol says, born to give them second birth. Think about that. Born to give them second birth. How clearly does this show how lost the state of mankind is? How sinful he is? that the only hope for him is to be born entirely again. He cannot be resuscitated. He cannot be revived. He doesn't need time of recuperation. He has to scrap it all and be born again. Except that this birth is not a defiling birth. It's not a picture of uncleanness, but rather cleansing. It's interesting the connections between the new birth or regeneration and being cleansed in the New Testament. If the old birth is a picture of uncleanness and defilement with sin, the new birth is our cleansing, as the Spirit gives us new life with holy desires and a heart and a mind for God. We have a new nature. We are no longer dead in sin. That man was put to death. We're new creations in Christ. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, he speaks of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. One commentator says, by water and the Spirit are signified the same one thing, the water showing the cleansing power of the Spirit. Elsewhere, this inward cleansing of the Spirit is described not as a washing with water, but as a purging by fire. As John the Baptist says of Christ, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Furthermore, 
What we see elsewhere is that blood and water so often go together in the Old Testament and in the New. It is by the blood of Christ that we are washed clean. While our first birth in Adam was in the defiling blood of sin, our second birth is in the cleansing, purifying blood of Christ, which takes away our guilt and washes away the old man within us and makes us new creations. This is why Paul could say to the Corinthians, after giving this this whole litany of all kinds of sins and sinners and all kinds of bad things, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Is that you today? Have you received the second birth? Born once, die twice. Born twice, only die once. If that isn't you, you may say, you know, Pastor Ryan, I have heard this my whole life. I just don't get it. I've tried to muster it up. I've tried to do things. I've tried to have faith, but I, it, it just, I can't wrap my head around it. I can't, I can't work it. In many ways, I would agree with you. It's totally a work of the Spirit. It's something God has to do in you. Just as none of you planned to be born, you were just born, so also no sinner can bring about their second birth. And yet there is still hope for you. There's still hope for you to be born even today for the second time. You know what you have to do? It's really mysterious. You ready? Ask God. Ask God. That's all you have to do. Confess that you cannot do anything to give yourself new life that he is all-powerful to give new life, and that Christ's blood is powerful enough to cleanse you of your sins, and he will answer you. I heard a cool story this last week. I would encourage all of you to give it a listen. It was on a Reformed Baptist podcast from the UK, and they were interviewing a man named Eddie Roberts from, from Liverpool. He has like a really strong Liverpool accent, and he's a minister there now. But he had a very remarkable testimony. He and his family were caught up in what has been called historically the Troubles, the Troubles of Northern Ireland. It's basically a period of time from like the 60s all the way to the 90s when you had the Irish Catholics and the IRA in Northern Ireland bombing and blowing up and shooting the Irish Unionist Protestants in the north both sides basically with their own kind of mirror terrorist organizations fighting a war of terrorism on one another, and Eddie was on the Protestant side. He was basically in a terrorist organization. He said when he was a young man, nothing excited him more than the idea that one day he would be trusted enough within the organization to get a chance to kill a Catholic. He said that, that is just, that is what he totally looked forward to. But then through a series of events, he was exposed for the first time in his life to the gospel. And he said, a woman asked him if he was a Christian, and he said, yeah, I'm a Protestant. And she said, no, no, are you a Christian? 
have you ever been born again? And he said in his accent, I told her, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. God began to draw him and his wife, and they started going to church and coming under conviction for their sins. But he said that still he couldn't grasp the whole born-again thing. He said he'd heard people talk about getting born again, but he didn't understand what that was. He'd never experienced it. Yet he said one night he remembered a verse from Matthew 7, "'Ask and you shall receive.'" He said he kneeled at the side of his bed with the Bible on the bed. He realized he'd never actually prayed to God. He'd never actually asked God for anything other than saying the Lord's Prayer or something. He said he was thinking to himself, quote, I believe this stuff, I believe this is real, and I've read, that, I've read this stuff that happened to everyone else, and I want this to happen to me. So he prayed to God in his thick accent, Lord, I know you're there. Give me this born-again thing. I don't know what it is, but I know I need it. So forgive me and give me this born-again thing. Boys and girls, you can pray that simply. <laughs> give me that thing that the pastor talks about every Sunday that happened to my parents, that they tell me about it. I don't understand it, but I know I need it. Give me that born-again thing. He said he had also heard about a minister that God had saved a man named Roy Hughes, and God had helped this man to quit smoking cigarettes. And Eddie said he could never kick the habit, and so he also prayed. It's kind of very funny. It's very funny to hear his accent. And while you're there, Lord, take away these cigarettes that I smoke because you did it for Roy Hughes also. He says, in my mind, he actually said, in my mind, I was not even sure what had happened. I waited a second. I didn't hear a choir singing. There were no flashing lights. The quilt didn't hover in the air or anything like that. He went to bed. He said the next day it was the freakiest thing. He woke up like a non-smoker and he never smoked again. He kept thinking, no, any second now it's going to happen. I'm going to have the desire. And he said, I, I just never did. And God gave him the new birth. So all you have to do is ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. It might not be as dramatic as Eddie Roberts. Hopefully none of you children smoke cigarettes right now. You might not feel loosey-goosey. It may not even happen right away. But that verse is a promise of Jesus Christ to sinners that everyone who asks shall receive, even you. So just ask. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your great mercy, you gave us the new birth by your spirit. And there was nothing we could do to give it to ourselves. We thank you that you have taken us out of Adam and his guilt and the corruption that we received from him and original sin, and you have united us to Christ by faith. You've washed away our sins in his blood. You've washed away the old man and given us a new heart, a heart of flesh and no longer a heart of stone. Father, we pray for those here 
those children among us or anyone listening who does not net know you, who does not, has not yet received the second birth, Lord. Oh God, would you give them faith that they would be able to sing those words of that Christmas carol by faith as those who have experienced it, not as mere onlookers. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's name.